two married to each other ladies where we break down all things queer and unqueer in each episode of The Wilds. My name is Allie, and as always, I'm joined by my wife and the love of my life, Rachel. Hi, everyone. Rachel, what are we talking about today? It's a special episode, Allie. What, 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 what is special about it? Where do I begin? <laughs> As we mentioned at the tail end of last episode, this is almost a potpourri of fun. We're going to talk about falls from grace and redemption arcs, and we're going to go through each duo. On either side of that, we're going to talk a bit about the military connections that occur throughout the series of the wilds as well as all of the mentions of the wilds by different characters throughout the series. We'll also spend some time talking about symbolism and answering a few frequently asked questions that we've gotten over the course of our season so far. This is the last episode of Out in the Wilds Season 1, so we will also be saying a fulsome, comprehensive, and heartfelt goodbye. As always, we will start off before we kind of get into things with a spoiler content and language warning. Spoiler wise, this is not a spoiler free podcast. We'll be talking about stuff that occurs across the show. So make sure you've seen the whole thing. Content wise, we are going to be talking about things across all of the girls stories. And so there are a lot of like mature subject matter and themes. You've seen the show. We shouldn't say anything that's going to shock you, Um, but just a little bit of like a a warning, general warning. And then uh, language-wise, uh, we fucking swear. So know that going in. It's my last time getting to say that this season. I know. And every time you say it, you get a little bit more vulgar. <laughs> what started as like cutesy alley. Like, oh, oh, we're going to swear. We're going to swear. It's now like, yeah, we fucking swear. You're going to have to fucking live with it. Well, you know what the eh? funniest thing was is like, I didn't realize how much we were going to swear. Like, I, did, I genuinely didn't, right? Until, like, the first time I listened back to edit us, and I was like, oh, fuck, I swear a lot. What so. were you like? Oh, fuck. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. I just was wondering. Yeah. Um, so now I've just decided, eh, whatever. Honestly. I mean, this was gratuitous swearing. We, we, did, we don't spoiler content language-wise for that. For the gratuitous swearing? Yes. We put the explicit E on things. I'm not cleaning anything up. To start off, we're going to talk about some of the military connections and references that have occurred throughout the series. This is something that we've been tracking informally all along, but hasn't really had a good place until this point. I'll caveat this with saying that we are not at all military experts. We have family members who have been a part of the military, but certainly by any stretch are not experts. You're just cute. I want to caveat this saying we are not military experts. There are some things that we are experts about, and this is not (laughs) one of them. And I just want to be really clear with that before we get into it. I'm going to start by saying that throughout the series, we see five examples, plus like one big example of camouflage. Now, camouflage is of the military, if you will. But it's also of other things, too. So I just do want to also caveat my caveat. Did you research the history of camouflage? I just did a little bit briefly. (laughs) And as the second I Googled it, I was like, oh, my goodness. Why didn't I think about this until we just started recording? I had all the time in the world. People expect this of me. Who am I? And nope, I didn't research it. So you know what? Bonus at bonus episode. No, I'm teasing. I'm going to go through them, 
and then maybe we could talk about it. So in episode one, and also throughout the series, you see a number of girls wearing it, in particular Martha. Fatten has a purple camo jacket. In episode two, and also throughout the series, Tony has some weird soldiery camo shorts. In episode two, Rachel's mom, when she's in the stands watching Rachel dive, has a camo cardigan on. In episode four, Fatten has not only a camo jacket, but also a camo skirt. In Tony's episode, episode four, when Regan comes up on her in the car, you can see that Tony is wearing a camo sweatshirt. And last but not least is in episode seven, when you see the plane transfer scene, if you will, there's camo everything, camo clothing on all of the folks that support and help out. Yeah, the camo is one of those things where there's too much of it almost to have not been a conscious choice, right? Like, especially when you really, like, when you're listing it out and you're really spelling out all the different times it happens, because I don't know about you all, but I have not worn camo in a very long time. So it's like a very specific choice, right? It's a very specific choice that's existing across both the girls, but then also their parents as well, too, which is interesting. And so I think... I've always, and we've talked about this before, like there's so many places where I feel like there's like a bigger narrative happening in the show, um, speaking to a connection with the military. And so when these choices are made, these very subtle things that's being done with like costuming, which the wilds has always been phenomenal with, it feels like there's kind of like hidden messages buried in them. Yeah, definitely. And we've just started here with the camo, but I also just want to call back that One of our main location theories is that they are on some sort of a naval base, especially the bunker, and that the island might be adjacent to an old airstrip. So that's one of our core location theories. And we went through some of the evidence for that in episode 11, particularly honing in on the bunker look, feel, very military, of course, the connection to Audrey when Audrey emerges, the fixtures, and particularly the naval clock in the rooms as well. I will say that for a lot of the camo, as I mentioned, Fatten has a purple camo jacket. We see that go around. So choices like that, you're like, okay, number one, it's purple. So like, can we really read into it as an army or military item of clothing? After all, it's purple. And we can't really count every single time that it recirculates because it's one of the few items of clothing that they have on the island. But some of the other pieces, like you mentioned, Han, with Rachel's mom as an example, make it feel a little bit more intentional. The other piece I want to hone in on is that Tony's shorts, they're like that different kind of digital print of camo. And when I was just looking it up, to me, they look like a naval print of camo. And I actually think it's a naval print that is about to be retired in 2019. So just to call back to our naval theory, that Tony's shorts might be naval. But again, not a military, not a campo expert in particular. So aside from some of the clothing, there's a few examples of very specific military artifacts I want to mention. And so Dot's episode is a very clear one. We know that Dot and Shelby are from Fort Travis, which has some military undertones that there might be a military base at that location. The other pieces of that is in episode three, when Dot delivers the drugs to Andrew, we can see that he's wearing dog tags. 
Dot's dad behind him when he's laying in the living room in the chair, you can see that he has an honorable discharge. As well as Mateo mentions that veteran affairs aren't covering one of the sets of pills when he cautions Dot about basically not dealing drugs. Two other pieces. One, Dot's dad, when he passes, he says this is the end of the tour, Dot, Mm. which I think is a double meaning. We know that he's really into music. We see that with the gift that Dot gives him, as well as some of the posters around their house. But also the end of the tour is symbolic of a military tour tour ending. And last but certainly not least is the conversation between Dot and Gretchen at the end of episode three. Take a good look about the setting of it. It feels and looks very like courthousey, military, governmenty, administration-y. I think that's a word, actually. Like, I think government administrative. <laughs> like, I might be in the dictionary. I'm not sure. And there's a lot of... There's not a lot of flags, but there's, like, a couple of flags. No, I agree. That room always kind of struck me as government or, like, military Like, it's just, like, the way the flags are. It's, like, those kind of, like, the small ones that sit on the table. It's, like, the way that it's sort of, like, decorated. There's sort of, like, a sparseness to it, but, like... No, it definitely feels like sort of like a military room. And that's always that one of the reasons why I've kind of spiraled down the the Gretchen was in the military, especially like when you tie it with the ways that she talks to Audrey with the military sort of setup we see when they're taking the girls to the island with the potential they're on this military base. That's always been something, and Gretchen using military time too. That's something that's always like spoken to me about the fact that there's a bigger military connection with the experiment but i think like dots episode in particular is this weird microcosm where there's also all of this military pieces going on and so like i think you know it it gives some validity sometimes to like theories about gretchen being dots mom because of that sort of like dual purpose of like everything with gretchen being surrounded with military and then like the military being so prevalent in dots episode as well You just can't let me have the Tim did it. It's not having anything to do with Gretchen or Mateo. Gretchen's not the mom. You just can't let me have it. Well, speaking of language, that was my last theme that I wanted to pull out, Allie. So as you mentioned, the way that they use military time, the way that they speak to each other. So for example, in, I believe it's episode two, Audrey says word came down from HQ, no extraction. Some of the other terms like drop point and operative are very of the military. Military-esque. Of the military. military. (laughs) Operative, packaged, check base camp, bringing in the cargo. I'll also say too, there's a neat moment in episode five when Alex and Gretchen are having their bickering off as part of their tension And Alex says, if I am permitted to speak honestly before he goes into it. So some of the mannerisms I think are, are typical of a more of a hierarchical. It's also like something you see in military movies. Like if I'm permitted to, to speak honestly, is like a very like speaking to your commander kind of system. Right. Right. And then I think everything, as I mentioned about the plane transfer scene. And so the walkie talkies, the ways with which they're communicating, all of the camo, all of the people, they're very dressed in like a soldier type of uniform and an operations type of uniform. The tents, the vehicles, the cargo, the boats, everything feels very organized. It 
in a way that military operations are. And so in summary, we just wanted to pull out some of the clothing, some of the items, some of the language that really ties back to the military. And we're wondering if this might be something that we see a little bit more of in season two. Yeah, I think it definitely will be. I think the the sort of like layers and hints have been really well done. And I think there's a lot of places and a lot of gaps in our knowledge about why Gretchen is doing this experiment and, you know, who is backing this experiment, who is funding this experiment, how does she have the access to the resources that she does. And I think we're going to unpack and, and, and tackle some of those in season two. I think it's like kind of like the next natural step to do is to understand a little bit more like the motivations that Gretchen has as we kind of like zoom out on the experiment a little bit. So, I mean, I'm hoping that we get to see a bit more of that. They started to kind of tease us with seeing her go to like donor meetings and seeing some of like those things take place. But I think, or at least I hope that those military questions will be answered a little bit better. So our next kind of section is a bit of a big one. And what it specifically has to do with is falls from grace and redemption arcs. This is something that I've been trying to find a way to work into an episode for a really long time. Wanted to find a way to kind of build it in that felt natural. So there was a couple points where it almost became a special segment and it almost became a special segment for the duos episodes as an example, but it just didn't always fit necessarily with the flow of the things that we were talking about. So we pulled it out as a part of this sort of finale episode. What I've done is mapped out these concepts of falls from grace, these concepts of redemption arcs for all of the girls, because I think the journeys that they're being tasked with, the journeys that they're being asked to take, not only by Gretchen, but but also by their families, by larger society, by some of those pressures that they're facing, mirror each other in interesting ways and also impact the ways that they move and interact on the island. So I think the probably the best way to do this is first I'm going to like just kind of do a little bit of like a like a scoping out of sort of what this is going to look like and then I'm going to take us through each of the pairs and we'll be able to talk about like what those journeys look like for each of them. So the first one that I want to talk about is Falls from Grace. Falls from Grace is an interesting concept. First off, it really goes in with this idea of religious symbolism that exists throughout the wilds. But what really a fall from grace is, is it's a fall from favor. It's sort of like a loss in perception of people about you. It's a loss in status. Um, And in like originally, like way back, it was like a loss of um, sort of favor, I guess, with with God in particular. Right. Um, And so but for each of them, they have sort of like a different fall from grace that they go through. And a lot of them happen in their backstories. But there are actually are some that are still happening are still in progress or process happening on the island as well. Which brings me to this other concept that I think is really important for us to talk through. And that's the idea of a redemption arc. For each of the girls, they're carrying something that caused their fall. They're carrying something that they see as a flaw. They're carrying something painful within themselves. And what they're doing on the island is having this time to be able to confront that that idea and having an opportunity to do things differently or to react to things differently. So they're given these opportunities for redemption arcs throughout the show. And sometimes they meet them, sometimes they surpass them, and other times they still struggle to change and let go of the things that were holding them back in sort of their previous pre-island lives. 
But I think like these two concepts, this idea of falling from grace and this idea of a redemption arc as a way of building back, as a way of growing, as a way of trying to get back to a place of grace, sort of speaks to that like whole story that a person has. And I think like that's what the show is doing for us, right? We start off with the girls on the island or on the plane, but then we slowly trace them back backwards, but we're also tracing them back forwards. So we're really getting that understanding and getting that sense of what their story is through all acts from beginning to end and being able to actually see the ways that they are growing and changing or they're falling short of growth and change. So the questions that we're going to ask as we talk through each girl are, you know, where and when did they fall? Where did where and when did that fall from grace happen? What did they fall from? What is kind of their fatal flaw? What is that piece that they need to work through? That piece that they're carrying that they need to be able to shift and change and break down. We'll think about, you know, their initial fall versus sort of like that subsequent fall or their initial fall and sort of like the ongoing ways that their lives are cracking and breaking. We'll talk through what do they need to do on the island? What is that upward motion that they're supposed to be working towards? Probably talk a little bit about how it's going too, because they're all in very different stages with it. And then also thinking a little bit about like when their fall happens with the audience, because I also find for each of them, it's very different. The fall that they have with their parents isn't always the fall that they have with us when we're watching. And so those moments when we lose trust, when we maybe see them for something that's different than the way that we had built out a perception of them is different than when we see that crack happen for their family. And I think as much as we we think about the gaze of family, we think about the gaze of society on the girls, it's always really important to remember that like we're onlookers too. And so like we're coloring sort of like their interactions with our own perceptions as well. And so we have like an active role that plays in that, which is always that line that Leah's playing with every time she looks at a camera. Before we get into it, can I make a homophone joke? Sure. When you're talking about gays, what are you talking about? <laughs> like G-A-Z-E. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> I mistook. I thought just, it was G-A-Y-S. Just to clarify. Thank you. Hmm. Okay. That's, That's all. It. That's all I have to say. Keep going, oh. smarty pants. Okay, great. So I think the pair that makes sense to start with is Rachel and Nora. So we'll start with Nora. So if we're thinking about her, we're thinking about her fall from grace. We're thinking about where she existed Nora's always a person that's had a lot of grace, right? She's had a lot of people who think highly of her. I know she talks a little bit about not getting that so much from her schoolmates and from friends and from society at large, but she definitely sits in a place of grace with her parents. She sits in a place of grace with Rachel as well a lot. And so she sort of like had all of those pieces. And even when she's going to summer school and when she's building those things, she does still sit in a space of, of grace, right? And she does have a lot of place with that. And then um, when Quinn meets her, when she finally meets Quinn, like that continues. Like Quinn thinks the world of Nora, right? And like, and that's really the crux of where that fall from grace happens from her, right? So if I was going to pinpoint it to a moment, the moment that I would pinpoint Nora's fall from grace is, is that breakup with Quinn. That's that place where we see someone's perception of her cracking. And so there's a lot of things that like, 
go along with that. But what what her what is she what she's falling from is that perception as someone who is sort of like strong and independent. She's having a bit of a fall from not only her relationship with Quinn, but also her journey on self-discovery, right? And so all these kind of things that she's holding on to. And this also is like the start of what is a little bit of a spiral for her as well. We see after the breakup, you know, there's the moment where she finds out about Quinn. There's all the pieces of her in the hospital with Rachel when she's clearly struggling. There's the path that she takes as she starts to partner with Gretchen more. And so that really starts off sort of that that movement and that sort of downward spiral that she goes in as she just starts to accumulate more and more darkness around her. Her fatal flaw is really her selflessness, which is a weird one for her to be her fatal flaw, but that's what I would say it was. It's her inability to not put Rachel first. That's the really crux of her breakup with Quinn, right? Like she can't put aside Rachel's perspective. She can't put aside Rachel. She clings to that and holds that really tightly. And so in those moments, she can't prioritize anyone else but her sister. She can't prioritize these other relationships she had. And so what she needs to do on the island is like learn and understand how to put others before Rachel and or to put herself first, because that's a part of like selflessness, right? She doesn't even put herself first. And what that actually does is it occurs to the detriment of herself and to the harm of herself. I think her journey on this on the island is eh. That's genuinely what I wrote down in my notes. It's, it's like, like, can you, can you like a more like, it's is, like, it, like is it a five point scale? Like what's the scale here? It's like how is it going? I wrote down my notes. Eh, it's you know good. She still genuinely puts Rachel first all the time. She she puts Rachel up on that pedestal. She focuses all of her energy on. Uh, Rachel's wellness and protecting Rachel and it I mean it causes some problems uh, it causes some problems in the ways that she has opportunities to relate with the girls but it also causes problems around her role as the confederate and like the places where she lives up to that and doesn't live up to that in really complex ways then the final bit that I said I was going to do is like when did Nora have a fall with the audience like a fall from grace with the audience I mean, hers is the most clear-cut example. I would say it's in the woods when Leah finds her. Or, like, when she almost suffocates Leah. It's definitely, like, that night. Like, those scenes. Those are, like, the scenes that people carry with them. Those are the scenes where they're like, ooh, Nora's not exactly who I thought she was. Like, that's the... That's sort of that crack in the perception that she has. It's interesting to think of her fall from Grace on behalf of the viewer as those scenes. I wholeheartedly agree. Like, I think when we were discussing those episodes, we both felt quite strongly that she was genuinely considering suffocating Leah. And then we see her build back up that trust and that grace, even when she does navigate Leah to the hole, but then she reveals herself, which we also thought was a really bad idea. So I think she is building herself back up and really notices that momentary lapse in a way that demonstrates maybe some learning from your experience with Mm -hmm. Quinn. Mm-hmm. But the other piece, now that we've watched it a couple of times and I'm interested in your thoughts on, are in her montage, we see a few other moments where she protects her Confederate role, whether that is the lighter tackling Leah or even sending out SOSs about Jeanette or getting the bag or some of those other pieces. 
Does that change where she breaks as a viewer? I don't think so. I think the trick with Nora is as long as she's hiding her role as a confederate, as long as she's existing and hiding her role in the overall experiment, it's hard for her to build back up with the viewers, right? Like, especially when you consider it in terms of Rachel, because no matter how bad she feels, no matter how much she advocates for food for them, Rachel's there because... I mean, we think Gretchen overall wanted Rachel, but like for Nora, like Rachel is there because Nora said, I want to bring my sister and she has information and knowledge that can help them in a lot of ways. Right. And so an access that can help them. So every day that she kind of holds that status quo, it becomes it's it's hard to sort of reverse that, I guess. Would you agree? Yeah, I think that's fair. So as always, we pair Nora with Rachel. And so I think if we're thinking about Nora and we're thinking about sort of her fatal flaw being that selflessness, being that refusal to pick herself, being that constant picking of Rachel in particular, Rachel's fatal flaw is going to be her focus on the objective above people. She's always picturing that bigger journey and that pursuit of greatness is what really drives her. But she chases it often to the detriment of her relationship with her sister, to her relationship with others, and sometimes to the safety of the other girls on the island. If we think about what she fell from, she fell from literal greatness, right? She fell from literal greatness as a diver. She fell also, I mean, physically, but like, we'll talk about that after. But she she fell from sort of this pedestal that she was standing on as a future Olympian, as someone who was working towards that, as someone who was prolific in her skill around diving. I would say the moment when she fell and the moment of where she fell is actually way back. It's not that moment where she falls off the diving board. I think it's that meeting that she has with her coach. It's that meeting where she's being told that she's not going to be able to dive in the future, that she doesn't have the right body type. That sort of like all of those things are pulled away from her. But I think for her, what's a little bit different is it's not necessarily how people's perception of her crack. That's a slow process that happens slowly as Nora sees her disintegrate more and more and more. But I think that's the moment when her self-perception sort of shatters. That's the moment where she sees herself as less invincible. This starts that sort of like, subsequent fall right where we see her sort of struggles with bulimia where we see her hospitalization where we see that physical fall off the diving board which the physical fall off the diving board i would say is probably like when nora's version or vision of her really cracks and so if we think about what she needs to do on the island what are the steps that she's being asked to take those steps are you know being able to care for herself physically being able to rely on others is a big one because in her quest, her quest for greatness is so individual. It's she has to do it and she has to do it alone. And she also has to widen her view past sort of this scope of a single goal to understand the context of everything going on around her. I mean, how's it going? I think it's going pretty good, to be honest. Sorry, where is that on your scale? <laughs> I don't know. I didn't make an actual scale. Um, oh my goodness. It's like <laughs> I did put an exclamation point after good though. But is it a five point scale? Is it a seven point scale? Like It's a 45 point scale. Oh Jesus. <laughs> I think Rachel goes through so many redemption arcs on the island. And so 
Hers is less of a story of one big redemption arc like Nora's is and is a little bit more about these small steps that she takes towards her goal. My favorite example of like a mini or a micro redemption arc that she goes through is her whole story with Leah. It's that whole piece around the way that, you know, Rachel holds Leah's ankle in the water and everyone's always like, bad. Ah, she tried to drown her. I mean, she didn't try to drown her. She just went, came on way too strong, but she never, if Rachel wanted to drown someone, Rachel would fucking drown someone, just to be clear. Cool, cool. <laughs> cool, 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 cool. Um, but in that moment, you know, she she almost, she could have drowned Leah and she put Leah's life in danger and sort of like the redemption or the reflection moment back of then Rachel later on being the one that saves Leah from drowning when she swims out into the water. That's like a small example of it. But we also, and that's a small like sort of like pinnacle example, like when she goes out to save Leah, that's like really a huge turning point from her. We see her afterwards and throughout her entire journey on the island, really start to let go of some of the pieces that have been holding her down. Some of the things, especially around um, her, like her body issues that she's really clung to since that initial fall that she's really circled herself with. We see her begin to strip those back and begin to let those go. We also see her begin to step out of that idea of greatness and understand her role overall in a team. We see her to learn how to care for herself physically, make sure that she eats. We see her be able to let things go. Um, and particularly the, like the last episode is such a weird thing for Rachel, right? Like just the way that she's supportive of other people, of the ways that she makes jokes. She's clearly like not quite great at it yet, but those are those first steps in her going. And so I think like while some of the girls are super early in their redemption arcs, she's quite far along. And she's quite far along in the way that she's kind of like growing and understanding and, and changing. If we're thinking about what gave her a fall with the audience, I would probably say it's the Leah drowning scene. I think like that's when we think about the moment where most people get upset about, like as, a, as an audience watching the show about Rachel, it is that scene. That's the scene that, that people kind of get in their brains about, right? And so I would say that that's, that's probably the moment that she fell with us. But I think also like that moment happened so early that she has the time to work her way back from there. I think you're right that her fall is with her meeting with the coach. And I love the way you put it that she fell from genuine greatness because I think that's something that we can really identify and see it as, you know, that really she was achieving greatness. Like a greatness that's like a... It's not everyone's greatness by any stretch, but it's like a respected and universal greatness to be an Olympian, right? And I also think it's interesting that the way that she fell with us wasn't in her episode, but it was an episode later. Mm -hmm. And I think that goes back to just like, I love the way that the wilds tell stories. Obviously, we're 17 episodes into this thing. What? <laughs> But it's interesting because in her episode, she talks to the detectives about how folks would say that she was stubborn, didn't know when to quit, and she really primes us for this moment. And so it's interesting that we were kind of waiting for that fall, and so maybe it, we notice it a little bit later. The other piece I want to say is I think Rachel struggles with her own authenticity to some extent. Mm. In terms of, we know that she perpetuates the Stanford spiel. We see that in the conversation that she has with Nora about how she wants to get back there. And then, of course, it blows up on the islands. 
as well as even sometimes we see her struggle with processing some of the emotions that come with authenticity. So something we always talk about is when they're doing that faux TV interview, Shelby looks upset, but so does Rachel. And I think it has to go back to do with not really feeling that comfort or that authenticity in her own self, or maybe trying to reconcile what she feels that she knew about herself and whether or not that's still true. What's the thing that we always say about Rachel, right? Like she needs a goal, she needs a task, she needs a purpose, she needs a place. And when she doesn't know the answer to those questions, she struggles. And I think what you see in that moment is a reflection of Shelby back too. It's funny when when you see, because they intersperse those scenes, right? With the actual scene of them all sitting in a row on the beach and then the scene of them kind of on the chairs or in the on the couch of the fake news show. Shelby looks upset-ish on the show and like on the actual like fake sort of screen and Rachel looks okay. But it's really when you see them sitting on the beach to like pass this sort of projected performativity that as they're imagining them on this talk show, when you really see the levels that they're both struggling, they're both kind of just like staring at the ocean a little bit listless, right? It's like thinking about the ways that for them, perception means so much for both of them. And like Rachel's a self-perception, but it's also her parents' perception. And she does like to be this sort of, projected version of this elite athlete right like that is such a core part of her identity that when she loses that she doesn't really know what to do rachel's always such an interesting exercise in like moderation too and that she always comes at things like a little bit too hard a little bit too intense and so sometimes she has to like understand how to walk that middle line and that's like a journey that she's been taking as well too i think the next person i want to sort of move into and I think it feels a little bit natural is Fatten. Why does that feel natural? I'm gonna I'm gonna get into it. Oh, okay. Fatten, similar to Rachel, carries this sort of prodigal daughter status. And that is sort of like the space that she fell from. Rachel raises herself up a little bit more and it's a bit more like her parents are like, oh we'll help hold you up. Conversely, it's Fatten's parents who raise her up and then Fatten who struggles to hold herself up. But I think the ways that both of them connect and the ways that both of them, like their falls from grace are connected so closely to their parents and to that perception of family, I think is really important. So prodigal daughter status, that's where Fatten comes from. And when she fell, I think the fall started when she sent the photo to her parents. Really that sort of like culminating activity is like that kitchen scene um, when they're sort of like, fighting but I think like that that scene where she first sends it is where those cracks start to happen I have a lot of questions about like when her parents found out I've been thinking a lot about that scene between Fatten and her mom where Fatten comes home and her mom is crying and sort of the question about why is Fatten's mom crying I think like all of our gut instincts are to be like well Fatten's mom has found out about you know her husband but sometimes I wonder if like she at that moment had found out about Fatten and found out that Fatten had kind of caused that pain. Because it's even when like Fatten is putting the lipstick on her mom, she's kind of like looking at her. And it's sort of like the first time she's ever seen her. She has this like 
this moment when she's looking at her and it, it makes me wonder a lot if like she's realizing that Fatten had a role in it in that moment in which case like that ties so closely with that that fall for both of them because the kind of like concept of how her parents found out is never really explained to us I would say that Fatten's fatal flaw is that she thinks she knows everything and she thinks she knows what's best for the people around her. And she does it in a way sometimes where she ignores the perceptions of others. And we really see her sort of like break this apart on the island because like her sort of overall goal is that she needs to like accept the truth from others and not judge. She needs to learn to listen as a big one too. And I think we sort of lose that in some of those like she needs to be a team player pieces. But that's not actually what she's trying to do. What she's actually trying to do is to like value the perspectives and lived experiences of the people around her. How do I think she's doing? I think she's doing great. I wrote it in all capital letters in my notes as well. So, uh, so far, if I'm understanding the scale correctly, Fatten is doing the best? Fatten is doing the best so far. Okay. Because I think her biggest thing is learning that, you know, when she sent that picture for her from her parents, when she had that sort of fall from grace, she didn't think about the people she was hurting. She didn't think about the things that would happen. We've talked this before that that isn't the way she had to deal with that. She could have told her mom in a private way, but she really was like bent around that sort of like public spectacle of like sending it out about her dad. Right. I think like that's where a lot of the anger comes from. But we see her sort of break down these pieces on the island, in particular with Leah. So break down sort of that idea of, you know, I don't think I know what love is. Break down that idea of sort of like exposing Leah's love notes through the book, which is like a very direct parallel to the way that she sort of like exposed like the pictures her father was sending like to his entire contact list, right? So we see her do these things. We see her mimic these things. We see her repeat these things. But then we see her understand the harm that she causes with them and start to actually move into a place where she can keep and hold things closer and can also protect the people that she loves in a different way and understand that she doesn't always know that's best. I think her fall with the audience is definitely when she steals the Diet Coke. I feel like that's the point when most people, uh, that's the point when I was like, I was like, oh, fat and put the fucking Coke back. But I think like she has such a quick redemption arc around that because we next episode find out about the waterfall. But I do think she like loses audience favor. It has like a fall with the audience, but then very quickly rebuilds that trust, rebuilds that that sort of like support back and then spend sort of the rest of the time. Once again, she's a very early redemption arc. She's a very early um, story that we really get going. And I think like she moves quite far ahead in her healing journey as a result of that. I don't think I'm as high on Fatten as you are. (laughs) I don't, I think Rachel is the, as the top. So, I mean, I stand Rachel. I think everyone knows that. It's not just a name. It's a feeling and it's a vibe. But... (laughs) Uh, but I think something we've really struggled with throughout the podcast is what motivates Fatten. And so we really struggled with that when she went to go find the waterfall. Was she actually looking to help? Was she just running away? I mean, Gretchen seemed to indicate that that wasn't characteristic of Fatten to run away, but how much does she really know these girls? And so to me, I'm glad you mentioned the Diet Coke because I actually forgot about it because initially I wrote down that the audience crack was the same as the fall from grace was the parents, Mm -hmm. but you're right that there was a a moment before then. Mm -hmm. 
I think the other thing I'll just say is, I think with Fatten, the pattern I see is that her cycle of causing pain and then healing from that pain or apologizing for causing that pain, it's still a cycle. It's just shortening. And so I don't want to be like, she's doing great. She's never going to F up again because I don't think that's quite true. We even see that in that really small fight that she has with Dot. It's kind of funny because it's one of the moments where you see... So when she punches Dot in the nose. Yeah, and I was going to say, I'm like, it's kind of funny because it's a physical thing. And that's very different than stealing the Cokes or doing the photo of the dad, which those are very deceptive things. Mm -hmm. But she's also physical with Leah when she smears blood on her face. And she's physical with Dot when she punches her. And so, like I said, I think that cycle is really tightening that cause harm and then heal from it is tightening but it still is there and so i'm not quite willing personally to put her above rachel on this fucking scale that might be like a three-dimensional scale for all i know while we're talking about it i'm making i'm writing it out it's linear don't worry oh thank goodness yeah i think that's true i definitely think but, but i mean growth doesn't happen right like it doesn't happen like that it's not like all of a sudden you learn a lesson and then you never make the same mistake again and so i think that the way that like fatten demonstrates growth is so important because yeah you don't just learn something once and then you completely it's it's not that easy to change your actions or change your habits or change like some of those emotions that you have and but i do think you're right like the cycle is tightening and like she's learning and recognizing patterns in herself quicker each time that they happen. I just think causing harm is important, but I also think the ways that she's starting to trust people are also important and are really important to her. So it's those parallels in the same way, like she doesn't trust a lot of people in the same way that Rachel doesn't trust a lot of people. Right. But anyways, I really like that piece that you said about the physicality because that is really interesting. Speaking of trust, do you want to talk about Leah? Yeah. Let's talk first about what she fell from. Similar to Nora, she fell from sort of a relationship, from a journey of self-discovery, from a journey of finding herself. She fell from sort of this perception that her that she held of herself, of this person who was going on this great journey. She fell from her parents' perspective as well, too, like their understanding of her as someone who was well, from Ian's perspective of her as... Uh, I don't know what Ian thought of her, like other than he liked her, but like, (laughs) but she like, there's a crack in that relationship as well. So she kind of like, she fell, but she's like, she's a little bit more of a tricky one to kind of like work out exactly what she's falling from. If I had to pinpoint the moment that her fall from grace started though, I would say it's her breakup with Jeffrey. I would say that's like that culminating moment. That is that cracking moment for her. And so Jeffrey's perspective of her cracks in that moment. But also I think like her perception of herself and her future cracks a little bit too. I think the thing that's her fatal flaw, people aren't going to like this. I think it is dishonesty, but I think it's also trust. And I think those are two concepts that she battles with. And those are hard ones because I know people feel like, ooh, the dishonesty piece, like she's a teenage girl and like it's it's not her fault for kind of like lying to like Jeffrey, which I agree with, like like teenage girls do stuff sometimes, right? But I think she struggles with the truth sometimes, especially when she has the perception that the truth is going to hurt her. We see it again with the pill scene, right? We see it again with that scene where 
you know, she drops the bag, but then she's, she's scared to kind of reveal that portion of herself or to speak that truth about herself. And so she doesn't tell them that the bag fell. And that's really connected to this concept of trusting them and trusting that people will still love her and care for her otherwise, right? And like, those are the pieces that she needs to kind of build herself back up. She's almost too reliant in a lot of ways on the perceptions of others and really needs to sort of like find that strength in herself as she's like lifting herself up. Those are sort of like some of her flaws, like what she needs to do on the island is to be true and to learn trust. If... (laughs) If we're asking how it's going, I wrote, well, dot, dot, dot. Um, sorry, where does that fall relative to meh? Or sorry, meh? Oh, eh. Yeah, sorry. What's So Nora is eh and Leah is well. Like, where are they? I would say that well is ahead of eh. I can't believe that somebody one time wrote us and said, I wasn't really surprised that Rachel's a scientist. I for (laughs) sure thought it was Allie. (laughs) I'm sorry, person. I don't mean to call you out, but can you fucking believe this right now? Do you regret your comments? I'll be waiting for my mailbox for a formal apology. (laughs) Sorry, Allie, where does it fall, my love? I'm expecting to make me scale it. I just... Well, you're giving it a consistent rating. Like, it's one of the questions that you answer. And you're answering it with, like, words that aren't typically correlating to a known entity. Yeah. And intonation's a part of it, too. Like, I I don't... (laughs) Intonation is a part of it. It's not great. It's great. Are you talking about Frosted Flakes? Because don't get me started. <laughs> Let's not cycle back to cereal. Uh, <laughs> Speaking hey, of can, cereal, I can, making I can... another homophone joke. <laughs> <laughs> it's a pod that started it all. Ooh. I also think it's worth mentioning that Nora's good has a period at the end. <laughs> Great. Glad there's punctuation. Cool. Yeah. I wrote, well, um, <laughs> because... I think, Unbelievable. <laughs> I think she definitely has moments of trust and moments of distrust as an example. Like, I think some of her, like, harder moments to kind of work through or think about are, you know, when she's accusing Shelby of being the Confederate, her sort of, like, physical fight with fat and some of the pieces around when she, like, swims out to escape the island. But that's all a little bit more mental health stuff-wise. And then, like, that pill scene. And that pill scene is what I would actually say is her fall with the audience. Like... That's like, I know some people are like, I didn't like Leah from the right off the bat. But I think like the moment when everyone was like, oh, Leah, or like sort of that perception of sort of her as a team player, which she had been up to that point cracked was when the pill thing happened in the in the woods. But I think the reason I said, well, is because I think she's working on it. But I think the island, if we think of this being about them supposed to make these journeys, the island is a place that is set up to make it intentionally difficult for Leah to be able to have a redemption arc, for Leah to be able to trust, for Leah to be able to be true, because it sets her up in a place where she always feels on the defensive to when she always feels like something is coming after her and someone is coming after her. And in those moments when she doesn't know who she can trust, she's going to struggle the most, right? And so it's really hard for her to come back back from those places and even if we think about her journey continuing on into the bunker like the struggle that she has even in those spaces to trust anyone and so it creates this these scenarios where leah can trust no one and can trust nothing 
And that's not actually the place that she needs to be if she's going to rebuild herself. I just want to say, too, I think some of the criticism that comes at Leah's character is people will paint the ways in which she questions truth with the same brush as when she's dishonest. But those Mm -hmm. are different things. Her questioning the truth isn't necessarily her being dishonest or misleading people or anything like that. Where she's going to be able to have this healing journey and have this redemption arc is when she questions the truth or what we think of as truth and shares it with others. Those moments when she lets Fatten in, whether that's after they find that Jeanette's body is no longer there or even the moment when she tells the goldfish story, those are really key moments. Unfortunately, Fatten doesn't really respond to the latter in the best way, but she responds to Jeanette's body in a in a way that's like really open and receptive. Those are the ways in which she's going to have this arc. It also, I think, leads us to perhaps our episode title, which is, it's a Dan quote. We're sorry. I love this one, though. Yeah, Ali's been really fighting for it, which is not all wild notions are without merit. And I think this is a, a something that's, Dan says it to Leah, actually. But I actually think in some ways it's essential to her healing is to really resonate within that. It's just unfortunate that it was kind of weaponized and used against her. Mm-hmm. No, I love all that. And I think you're right about it being central to her healing. It's Her trick is she tries to trust her intuition. She tries to trust her gut. But it's when other people are telling her that those pieces are wrong. That's kind of where that struggle happens for her. But I think it's also about her getting to a place where she's where other people trust her too, I think is going to be really important for her journey. Um, So her trusting people is important, but also getting to a place where she is seen as someone who can also be trusted. Because I think she builds that in the first few episodes, but then it cracks with Musclegate, right? Like it cracks like when Dot is so upset at her. And then she's trying to like rebuild that. But it's like really hard to rebuild that shit when you're also going through mental health and everyone thinks you're cray. Similar to Leah, if we're thinking about Martha... Martha's journey and her sort of redemption is really geared and centered around this idea of both accepting the truth and also of recognizing your inner strength. Where did Martha fall from? She fell from a perception of happiness, both in herself, but also a perception of happiness that others had put upon her. She fell from this sort of facade that she had built as sort of like a normal, happy, average teenage girl. I would put the moment that she fell, the moment that that cracked, as being the moment when Bernice comes into the gym to get Martha and she tells her about Dr. Ted. Connected a little bit with probably the Supreme Court stuff, but I think like that's the moment where people start to see the pain that she's in and, and start to see the struggles that she's had. And like Tony's perception of her changes in that moment, her mom's perception of her changes, her dad's perception of her changes. We've talked about this before. This would have been a big court case. So community perception of her would have changed. And so in that moment, it became so much harder for her to project something. And so she fell from being this sort of, you know, like happy-go-lucky like native girl who's just like, you know, doing her community stuff and like working her way through high school to being someone who's holding intense, immense amounts of trauma. Her fatal flaw is a lack of acceptance or a lack of ability to accept the truth. I 
don't think anyone's going to argue with me on this, right? Like, that's like the thing that she's struggling with. It's her not being in a place of healing, not being in a place of wellness, so she can accept what happened to her because accepting it and comprehending it is like those first steps to actually healing from it. So as long as she can't put words to it, as long as she can't name it, it's almost impossible to work through it, to be able to seek help for it and to be able to seek healing for it. Martha is someone who has a lot of falls after that initial moment or a lot of sort of like culminating spiraling moments after that, after that initial fall. We see her fight with Tony. We see some of the pieces around the bedwetting. We see her fleeing the powwow. And we see all of these pieces where she's struggling to accept the truth. And that's the end. That's the be-all, end-all that she has to do on the island is accept the truth and begin to heal. So if we think, you know, how she do it? My answer is so-so. That's what I hear. <laughs> oh man, I wish y'all could see Rachel's face right now. <laughs> it's just like, it just seems like there's so much in the middle. And like generally we try to veer away from neutrality and like an actual reliable study sorry i just see blind like i just see <laughs> I just, like i just see all, fucking red yeah like, i'm just in rage i mean you know i'm not a fucking scientist and i've never pretended to be a scientist keep going okay so 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 i think she's doing so so i think you know we see her her moment comes so late her episode comes late. All of those pieces about her come so late in the show that I would say she is just starting her redemption arc when the season ends. She doesn't actually begin to even accept those pieces until everything happens with the goat to when she's forced to come to this place where she's questioning in herself, you know, like how she needs to put herself first, how she needs to embrace her inner strength, how she needs to like trust those pieces of herself. Like that is all happening in like episode nine and 10. And the Martha that we leave on the island is very unwell. Um, and she still has a lot of healing and a lot of work to do around that. So she's not, she's not doing well, right? And so like, I think she, she will continue, hopefully, to heal and grow and accept things. But I do have a lot of fear for her in a space where, like, none of the girls have experience kind of, like, helping people through this kind of trauma. And, like, it's actually really hard to do. And it's really complicated to do. And it's a reiterative, long process. And so I worry about her actually having access to the supports that she needs on the island. What I think critical to this is that Martha has another fall coming. I don't think there's any way around it. And the reason I say that is because the other girls still see her as this like very pure person. And it's not to say that she's not this lovely human, but that perception is still so tied to her trauma. And so even when she kills the goat and provides food for the girls, the way that they respond, particularly Rachel with making the jokes, symbolizes that she sees Martha in the way that Martha wishes to be perceived. Mm -hmm. And so only really of the girls so far, Tony has seen that other version of her. And in order for her to really move on and be a part of that healing, the other girls need to see it too. And I think we have some evidence that Dot might be a person that she can turn to. Dot's really the person that seeks Martha out and talks about her mm -hmm. mental health after the goat incident. But I just wanted to say that Martha's really in for it, I think, in season two. Yeah, I agree with that. I think, too, it's always important to remember that this is a group of teenage girls. 
And so I even think about Tony and Martha and that fight that they have in the woods. And like, you know, we as an audience are watching and we're like, oh shit, I understand what's going on with Martha. I understand why she's struggling over this. And Tony knows, but Tony still can't like put it together in her head. And like some of that is also just her being a teenage girl, right? And like also being in the survival situation and also like struggling through all these pieces. It's really hard in those moments to also like see the ways that other people are struggling. So that's like the main reason that I'm really worried for Martha. I think we see sort of these like battling fights between her and Tony. So you know that that space where they're on the cliffside and she's yelling at Tony about how she needs to walk away. And then like conversely, like the scene with Tony and Martha in the woods where like Tony's basically telling Martha that she needs to show up, right? And like participate in help and things. And like the ways that those are like warring against each other just hasn't created a stable enough environment for Martha to finally be able to heal from these things. And I think she's put her healing on the back burner a lot too. But like breaking sort of like a self-perception of yourself is a really fucking hard thing to do. Definitely. And we love the Rachel-Martha parallels. And so we've talked in previous episodes about how they both have that greatness with Rachel through diving and with Martha through dancing, as well as the self-perceptions that each of them have that are so tied and critical to their identity, but also their pain. And the other piece I just wanted to highlight in parallel with them is that both of them had literal falls. So whether that's Rachel off the diving board or Martha off the trampoline, What's somewhat interesting to note is that we see Rachel have another fall. She falls into the quicksand and Martha is the one that pulls her out. And so I do think, again, maybe another fall from Martha is coming. And I also think that maybe there's a opportunity for her and Rachel to heal together too. I think the point that I just wanted to pull out too is you're right. And there's actually like several falls that happen throughout the show, like, like physical falls. Like we've been talking about metaphoric falls up until now, but actual like physical falls. So you mentioned Rachel and diving. You mentioned Rachel and the quicksand, um, Martha and the trampoline. Those are really good ones. We also have Leah falling down the cliff, which is a really important one. And we also have Shelby falling down the hill when Tony branches her in the fucking face. And so I think like some of these falls are interesting, right? Because like sort of like that physical manifestation of the fall. And so Shelby being that physical manifestation of being surprised by something. Rachel's being of her body failing her. Leah's being of trying too hard to reach for something or grasp for something and not being able to grab it, i.e. the mirror. And then Martha's of just being so joyous that you don't see harm coming to you. You don't see that wrong step when you hit the side of the trampoline. These sort of physical falls that we see are so symbolic of those metaphoric falls that they're going through overall. To just add to that, Han, when you talked about Leah falling, I was actually thinking about Leah falling when she's chasing Nora. Oh, yeah. But very similar rationale for how she ends up. It's that quest for truth. The other fall I'll add to is Lynn slash Jeanette's fall into the water when Alex tries to stop her. When it's like this moment for her of conscience and that moment of conscience is like what brings her downfall, right? And similarly, like, I don't think like her moment of conscience on the island, like brought her downfall, but I don't think running around apologizing to Leah really helped her internal bleeding either. Right. And so like, I think, (laughs) (laughs) Um, but anyways, I think, yeah, I just think there's, there's ways that they use this. There's also ways 
um, that they use like water in particular, like so many injuries happen around water, like Martha's ankle, like Lynn falling off the dock, like Rachel falling, like Lee almost falling off the cliff into the water. There's so many like water-based injuries and cuts and accidents that happen on the island, which is like really interesting. I mean, I know they're surrounded by water. I'm not dumb, <laughs> but I think, yeah, just the way that, that the, the water represents both kind of like a, like a foe, but also like a resource is fascinating. So after Martha, of course, comes Tony. So Tony's fall is from seeing herself worthy of love, from seeing herself as someone who other people see as worthy of love. I'd say the moment it happens is probably that parking lot fight. That's when sort of those cracks happen. That's when, you know, Regan's perception of Tony really changes and she really starts to question, like, if she can continue to do this relationship. This is the moment, too, for Tony that she sees herself as potentially not being worthy of love. That's that sort of, like, first moment when everything falls apart. It continues to kind of fall apart a little bit. We see that with her breakup with Regan. We also see it in sort of like these scenes from Martha's episode where she and Martha are fighting a little bit. We see it in the ways that Martha gets angry at Tony on the island and tells her that she's being too angry, she's being too reactive, and all of those pieces. So we can see like the ways that Tony thinks that she's not worthy of love impacting her willingness to let other people love her in ways and the ways that she pushes people away from herself. And that's her fatal flaw, is pushing people away and having cracks in her sense of self-value. What she needs to do on the island is she needs to understand what she brings and she needs to trust that other people will love her and trust that they are going to care for her. And that's a hard thing to do for her, coming from her own background, coming from like someone who's been in the foster care system, coming from someone who's always expecting people to leave her and always is expecting to be left. That's her biggest challenge to kind of overcome is to trust that people will stay and trust that she's worthy of people staying. How is she doing? Great! Uh, with an exclamation point, but not in all capitals. <laughs> I wrote um, that down wrong. Just sorry, I'm just going to write that down. <laughs> Capital G? Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Capital G. I think she's doing pretty good at it. I think like it's kind of early. It's kind of hard to tell. But I think most of the season she was really pushing people away. She was really struggling with the relationship that Shelby was building with Martha. She was struggling with those pieces. But I do think she's working towards that at the end of like season two. I don't think she's like 98% done her journey, but I would say she's like 70% done her journey. <laughs> now we're all- Now we're quantifying. <laughs> Lovely. <laughs> oh, it's so late here. <laughs> it's late and I'm irate. But I think like she's doing great in taking those sort of like first tangible steps. I think we'll see a lot in season two about how that's going. And I do think there are going to be trust issues that are definitely going to come up between her and Shelby but I think overall she's she's doing okay and then I guess the final piece is like when was her fall with the audience and so for Tony I would say it was probably when she like went ham on that shelter and just started chopping it and throwing it around that's probably the moment where audience lost a little bit of faith in her but I think like once again that happened so early on just like Rachel's did that she had the time to sort of claw and bring back and and sort of like begin to enter a stage of regrowth yeah i think you're right that it's the shelter and not the branching incident i think the branching incident 
We always talked about it at the time that it was so unstrategic because it was day one. So what was she doing? Like basically picking a fight. And so we more so just thought it was silly. And then once you started to see the patterns, then you really realized, okay, this is a part of a series of patterns. But it wasn't until the shelter moment that you really saw it break, essentially. So I agree with that. I think something that's interesting is just thinking about Tony and Martha as a duo. When Tony and Regan break up, it doesn't really change the perception that Martha has of her. Mm-hmm. And it like it, in a lot of ways, like it seems like Martha already knows that is like Tony's flaw, which is a little bit different than Martha's fall from grace which really changes tony's perception and i think that might be where some of that tension comes from that you talked about like the fights around the goat and that sort of thing where it always just kind of feels like martha's trying to like claw back this reputation that she wants this perception that she wants to have well she's so exposed right and like to be vulnerable in that situation with something that you're struggling with to to understand yourself and to know that someone in some way knows about this as well is like, it's so exposing, right? It's kind of like she's showing her belly, but she's trying to protect herself in those moments as well. Our final pair is Shelby and Dot. So maybe we'll start with Dot. Sure. Dot's my tricky one. Whenever I come up with like an overarching theory for the girls, Dot's always my one that doesn't fit. It's it's some of the reasons why I think that there's something fishy about Dot. But um, she's always the one that causes me a little bit of grief. And so like when I started talking with people a little bit about like my redemption arc theories, like my my thoughts about the ways that, you know, they're all on the island as like a form of purgatory where they're supposed to be sort of like atoning in ways for some of the things that they've done or atoning from those falls or atoning for some of the actions that they did, the ways that they're being given those opportunities to do things differently, like Leah and Fatten versus Fatten and her dad. Dodd is always the one that messes me up a little bit. It messes me up in sort of that journey, especially when I try to talk about atonement because I can figure out why everyone else has to atone for, but I can't always figure out what Dodd has to really atone for. So I don't know if that's like, holes in the story of her that we're being told if it's the fact that it's we're... definitely sarah's fault <laughs> i can't come up with a theory sarah you're the reason dot doesn't fit sarah and amy it's your fucking fault i'm just kidding um if it's because it's because there's holes in the story if it's because uh we haven't been told all of dot's stories so also sarah and amy's fault <laughs> if it's because dot is different from everybody else or if it's because my theory is just shit. I don't believe the fourth one. So, you know, <laughs> we're just working on it. So Dots is a little bit different because I feel like the important thing to note with her is it's less about what people think about Dot and more about what Dot thinks about herself. So in the same way, if we think about atonement and we think about, you know, Dot's guilt over her dad's passing, like we all look at that and we say, Dottie, you have nothing to be guilty for. But you have to always carry and hold in your hands 
Dot's perception of what she has to be guilty for. Dot's self-perception that she's still working through, right? And, like, we see her sort of um, struggle with that through the show. And so even, like, that, those sort of last scenes in the final episode of season one where she's talking with Martha about the goat and about how the goat wanted to go so she could live a life. Like, obviously, Dot is talking about her dad and talking about him and releasing some of that guilt that she has about him passing and understanding what it means overall to her story. So self-perception is a really big one for Dot. If we're thinking about what she fell from, I think her fall happens before we ever even meet Dot. I think Dot's fall from grace is a fall from a stable family and future. I think like that is sort of like, that is the, the point. That is the point when everything was in place for her, when everything made sense. And I think the sort of like when or why she fell would have been when her dad first got sick. I think everything else that we see with Dot from the drug dealing, from her struggling to take care of her dad, from the way she lashes out at Mateo, from her deal with Gretchen, those are all the fallout. Those are all the fallout from that initial fall from Grace that she's still working for. She's the only one that I think we don't see that fall with, that we don't see that moment with. For her, if we're thinking about what her fatal flaw is, she needs to be able to let self-blame go and she needs to also be able to care for herself. So similar to others, it's that sense of self-value. She needs to learn on the island to be able to put her wellness first, to be able to trust others and to let others help her and sort of to build up that network around her because self-isolation has always been such a huge-ish point for her. If we're thinking about her fall with the audience, if I'm saying her initial fall is something that we don't even see, I would say her fall with the audience is Gretchen. It's when she's with Gretchen at the end of episode three. That's the point where we're all starting to be like, huh, Dot, you look like you'd be a fucking confederate over there, don't you? But obviously, like, once again, it's an early fall. And so Dot has time throughout the course to build from that. She also has time throughout the course to sort of build her understanding of the people around her to be able to heal and stuff. She has moments with them. She has moments with Shelby and the green flash. She has moments with Leah. She has moments at that goat scene where we can see her start to understand her own value in the group. But I think it's definitely something she's still struggling with, which is why I've only given her a good-ish <laughs> rating with a hyphen, just so for your, for your spelling purposes. Um, I've given her a good-ish rating on how she's doing as a part of her redemption arc. I think Dot isn't as emotive. She isn't as vocal about things as some of the other girls. So it's a little bit harder to see where she sits. But I think she's just starting to put the pieces in together as part of a longer healing arc and starting to be able to see past sort of like the imminent task at hand to sort of this proposed future that she's working towards when she's planning with Fatten to move in with her. And so she's just starting to get to that point. When you first started talking about Dot being tricky, what first came to mind for me, and you did touch on this a little bit, is that Dot really struggles with wanting to do everything herself and taking on too much. And so it's interesting because I see a lot of parallels between her and Tony in terms of seeing themselves as worthy of love and care. What's interesting is that like we saw Dot having this like very enriching home life with her dad, but how the pendulum of who cared for who really switched. And that's something that her dad calls out too. And so 
She needs to like figure out how to go back to being comfortable with other people taking care of her. I think both Dot and Tony and their episodes are side by side. And we always talk about how the ordering of the episodes is really important. But I think both Dot and Tony, those are the two characters that we often see talk about being alone, whether that's Tony talking about how being alone is safer, which Dot really says a really similar sentiment by saying that by her being alone, she's able to function and be more safe and what she needs to do to support her family. And it's exactly the same as what Tony is doing. Both of them have this like undying and unending loyalty that really mirrors back upon each other. I agree with what you're saying, but just want to add the possibility that something that she should be more open to is other people taking responsibility for her. And that's something I'm not really comfortable giving her a good-ish on. I think because she needs to extend her windows and the way that Fatten's windows are tightening, Dot took like one break for 38 seconds and then she was like, oh, I guess I'm better. I think she's going to have another fall as well. Mm -hmm. And I think that's going to be really pivotal to the difference and change we see between her when we leave her on the island and her in the bunker where we talked last episode about how she might be the most different. Whether or not that's authentic or not, I'm not 100% sure, but I just think that there's another fall coming for her. The final person that I want to talk about is obviously Shelby Goodkind. So Shelby, similar to Rachel, similar to Fatten, has a fall with her family. So what she's falling from is this family perception of her as this sort of like perfect, good Christian girl, pageant queen daughter, right? Like that is what she's falling from. I think she also falls a little bit at her her understanding of who she is and her understanding or thought of herself as like a as like a good person who always does what's right. I think she she understands that there's a little bit more nuance in there. There's a little bit more fear, especially when you're that age. But in particular, her fall from grace perception-wise is from her family's perception. And so I would say the moment that that happens is when her dad walks in and she has just kissed Becca, right? Like that's the moment when sort of everything cracks and changes for her. And that's the moment where they start to see her as not sort of that sort of like, perceived perfect daughter child she's still perfect don't get me wrong she's lovely she's wonderful but like their sort of like understanding of her changes if we think about you know what her fatal flaw is it's wanting to be loved to a point where she gets involved in sort of like this sense of self-sacrifice so similar to Nora, right? Once again, these sort of like layers and these parallels, it's that sense of selflessness in a way, but like Shelby's has a little bit more of an edge to it, right? Like she is willing to sacrifice what she needs to be happy in order to be loved and has that sort of, it's not really self-deprecation, but like has that sort of willingness to give up what she needs or what she wants. Her sort of initial fall being that kiss with Becca has a lot of like, continual fallout from it right we see the kitchen fight or discussion with her and her dad her becca fight the pageant and sort of the ways that she struggles even on the island with letting go of some of these sort of like hateful ideals that she's been kind of taught and the ways that she's kind of been taught to perceive the world what she needs to do on the island is to get to a place where she can accept herself and put herself first, where she can love herself and understand that loving herself is a key point or a key part of like someone else loving her, right? And that, you know, she has to love herself first and foremost 
rather than like expecting sort of that like external validation. How's it going? I said in progress. Like I think she's. <laughs> They're all in progress. <laughs> I think she. <laughs> I mean, I'm going to do this again sometime just to see like the look. Your, your face is so angry. <laughs> funny i didn't even do it to make you angry what a happy what a happy uh side product oh lovely byproduct um (laughs) i'd say she's in progress i think she has a long long way to go i think we've seen sort of the ways that she's perpetuated homophobia on the island we've seen the ways that she sort of like brought dave onto the island and brought the ways that he like the impressions and the things that he taught her onto the island. I think we definitely see her towards the end of season one starting to accept herself. She's like entering in this new relationship with Tony, like everything's all yellow and sunshiny. Um, But I do think that dismantling like that sort of level of like self-hatred and like external hatred is a lot more complicated than that. So I think she still has a lot of an arc to do and it'll be a very reiterative process. And I think she's, she's still working on that. And I would say if we're thinking about what her fall from the with the audience was, her fall with the audience would have been the fight with Becca. Like, I think, like, that's the moment that sort of, like, people's perception of her changed and their understanding of the ways that she pushes that darkness out from inside of her sometimes and onto other people manifests. Yeah, and Shelby's an interesting one because she's also someone who has these like really mini falls throughout the series, but you don't really see the depths of her pain and her overall fall with her family until that fight with Becca. But even like Shelby kind of shatters the audience perception throughout. The first few words that she says on the plane really builds her up. And we talked about this last episode with how her accent's the most pronounced, how she's like the most godly Texan there ever did was on the plane. But even on the plane, we see her flipper. We see that strip away. Once she's on the island, she swears. She says, motherfucker, when she pulls out her flipper. And so we see these falls kind of come a long way, even on Hell Beach, where she snaps back at Tony That's another example where you just see it ever so slightly strip away. And then it's kind of interesting and it's going to be fun, I think, for us as an audience because she, I think, in a lot of ways falls the furthest. And so I'm curious to see if she gets to that place again. I mean, I would argue that Leah falls just as far as she does. It could be a tie. Yeah, we could, we could, joint falls the furthest. (laughs) What a dark award to win. Congratulations. Yeah. yeah, and that's that's kind of it around like falls from grace and redemption arcs. Like I do think like they're all supposed to be there to heal whether or not that's Gretchen's intention. I do think in a lot of ways that's the showrunner's intention. But I think that's also like the natural byproduct of like being put in this like in this space in this sort of like isolated environment is you really have the time and the space to confront those pieces about yourself. So many of them are nowhere near being done their arcs and being done sort of that growth that they need to do and so it's definitely something that I know is going to continue in season two and I know is going to continue to build I think maybe that was probably a lot of like heavy (laughs) so uh, we thought that maybe we'd break this up in the middle by doing some of our frequently asked questions yeah so a big thanks to a number of folks who have sent us in questions over the course of our season as well as a couple of folks 
that also responded to an Instagram ask. I'll also say too, we do have a Tumblr where we regularly respond to asks. So if you have any questions in the off season, so to speak, feel free to reach out there or you can reach out on any other social media platforms. So a question we've gotten a couple of times is what are our favorite and least favorite episodes? My favorite episode for sure has to be episode seven. It's also one of my favorite episodes of the pod. I love episode seven because this is where you really start to see the scale of the research operations, as well as it's Lynn's episode and we're huge Lynn fans in this household as well. The chemistry between Lynn and Gretchen is just incredible. And there's also some like fun on the island stuff. So this is also the episode where Tony and Shelby kiss. So there's a little bit of something for everyone in episode seven, but because we're the big research nerds or because I'm a big research nerd, Allie might get ejected from... What? What can I be ejected from? I'm not a researcher. (laughs) Anyways... Episode seven is, I think, my favorite. But no, I don't know even a thing. I don't think I know it's my favorite. Actually, whenever we rewatch it, we get to like episode six. I'm like, ah, this is like the series of my favorite episodes coming up right here. Episode seven is also my favorite episode. It is? Yes, I love Lynn. I think there's so many great pieces that happen in that episode. I think it's a great kind of turning point episode for the whole series. But I think there's also like such a nice balance between sort of growth going on with the girls, but also understanding a little bit more all the pieces that are going on with the experiment. So it is also, I think we've, we've said it multiple times on this podcast, so I can't go back on it now, but it definitely is my, uh, my favorite episode. My least favorite episode is probably the pilot. Damn it, that's mine. Now I have to pick a new one. No, you don't need to. Oh, okay. I mean, we've, we, what, like, the thing is, is we've experienced the show together, so it's not surprising that our faves and least faves are the same. And we also, like, we We're have little like rituals. Similar, yeah. We're also similar people, and we have the same sign. So, there you, you know, go. we're obviously going to like the same things. What? Yeah. And I think my biggest reason that I don't like episode one, it's not that I don't like it, it's just my least favorite. But all my episodes are my favorite. But I just don't trust it. Because I know it was filmed so much before. Mm -hmm. I know that they didn't really necessarily know everything that they were doing. I don't trust, like, even some of the things like the clothing. Or something that always struck me as kind of odd is when Shelby and Martha meet, the voiceover from Leah is, like, sometimes you meet a person and you know that they're going to be special. Which I think is, like, symbolic of their friendship. But it's almost done in, like, a are they setting those two up to be their relationship? Some, some people think there was supposed to be like a triangle between Shelby, Tony, and Martha at one point, or maybe like Martha was supposed to be with Shelby. Like, I don't really, I mean, that's a question for Sarah and Amy about like, if it's just a weird voiceover or if there was meaning behind it. I don't know. Yeah. And so like, I think it makes it really hard, especially for us who we go through and we are trying to analyze it. We're trying to think about what's going on. We just can't always put an, as much stock as we would like to in episode one because of some of the limitations with it so I think that's why it's my least favorite yeah I would agree with that I think too it's probably the one that's the most sort of like kitschy and I don't think that 
they had kind of found their voice yet over all the show had. And so there are some moments of complete and utter brilliance in it. Like, obviously it like wrote me in, but there's also some moments where I'm like, okay, you know, like, so I think um, it's just, it's a little bit still kind of figuring itself out at that point. And I don't think it's like a bad episode of TV. It's just, it falls behind all of the other episodes, which are such smash out of the parks for the rest of the season. We've had a couple of people, um, obviously, who are horrified by the amount of things and detail that we talk about sometimes and are like, what the fuck is wrong with you? Ask us how many times we've watched the show. And I actually think that this is a high number, but I actually don't think probably relative to some of the other folks it's that high. I think we talked about it a couple of days ago and we said... 13, 13 I think we there was a few times we watched it through before we even started recording and then when we were doing like the regular sort of recap episodes we watched each one through three times before we recapped and then like as we got towards the end of the season we did a full rewatch we were rewatching before each of sort of like the after initial 10 episodes, we were doing a full rewatch before all of those. So anyways, we, we went through and kind of started to estimate. We think it's around 13 times, which is, I mean, and, and I, I agree. There's probably people who've watched it more, but also is a little bit. I'm like, whoa. Yeah. Whoa. And every time we watch, I think, because a couple people have called us out for some of the details that we've noticed, is that every time we watch, we take excruciatingly detailed notes. And so we have notebooks full of notes with specific observations. And the recap is a lot more recap, but especially these past few episodes when we're doing the thematic analysis more so, it's like, sometimes we're like documenting looks and shit, so... Well, the recap episodes were terrible. No, they weren't terrible, but it was like we were writing down our recap of like scenes and then also analyzing the scenes. Yeah. One of the three rewatches was just detailing the scenes that we were responsible for. Anyways, it's like... Uh, it's a lot of pauses too, like a lot of stop and go. But it's actually been really nice doing these episodes because we're like, for example, if you're analyzing Dot... For episode three, you're like, I gotta really be paying attention. But like for some of the episodes that are so character centric, like Rachel's episode is pretty Rachel centric. Shelby's episode is pretty Shelby centric. You kind of can like kick back and like actually enjoy it for a little bit. Except you've already seen it like 12 times. So like the sum of the enjoyment and luster is a bit lost. No, I would agree though. Like the last five times that we've kind of like gotten to rewatch it through. Maybe the best five. Yeah, we both both remarked how chill they were because I'm just like, yeah, sometimes I can just sit back and like, especially when we did the Gretchen and Lynn episode because there's entire episodes where like you don't see Gretchen or Lynn, right? So like you really can just chill. That was a pleasant time (laughs) when we watched it it through before that episode. But something that's great about the show is we do notice new things every time like there is stuff that I write down that I've never written down before which is I mean just impressive we also received a few questions on season two both predictions but also thinking about some of the photos that have come out some of the leaks that have happened how those might play into our predictions as well as a question on if we think we will see more of Lynn in season two as well dear god I hope so yeah, I think, like, that's... I, I hope so, too. I don't know if we're going to, though. But I guess, like, she's... Uh, she is um, Australian, isn't she? Yeah. Or at least she's living in Australia. Which means, like, I mean, that makes it a lot more doable. Because, like, I'm, I feel fairly confident we're seeing none of the American actors 
other than like the main girls like in season two um i've talked about this before i do think like that's partially like what is happening with the boys i think like they're taking backstory time um because i think like with covid restrictions it's one thing to bring in your sort of cast leads and have them quarantine but bringing in all of the extras that are involved in each girl's family is a little bit labor intensive and a little bit silly if they're just coming in for three or four months and also i'm sure australia is like i don't know if this is worth the risk so i do think like we're not going to be getting backstory from any of the girls i think that also like resonates and makes sense with i think it was sarah who was talking and who was like yeah we're gonna look more into tony's backstory in like season three but i think it's it's mostly covid logistics that are stopping that from happening in season two do you think Lynn's coming back I don't necessarily think that she's coming back, but I'm also, you know, Lynn made such a big impact and probably only filmed for a few days relative to the other girls, right? So I hope that there's an opportunity to bring her back, even just for like for one guest episode or something as a flashback. Uh, I think it would be a really big missed opportunity if they didn't. And so I think because... Her role was relatively small to begin with. She's local in Australia. I think she'd be so crucial to like moving some of the other plot pieces around. I hope she's around in some capacity. And she is still a part of the girl's trauma too. Like that will be a part of their trauma and whatever healing looks like. And so, yeah, I'd love to see a little bit more of her. Well, I think there's more that they can do with her and Tom and like the setup of the experiment and some of those pieces that happened before, which would be good like and so I think I agree that there is space I think it would be a good smart move on their part I don't know if they're gonna do it because I also think that they have 17 million characters characters coming in for season two right now which is a little bit ah but um I would love to see Lynn back and I think just moving into some of our other predictions I mean certainly we haven't talked too much about the boys to date but I will say that we're like generally extremely cautiously optimistic, I guess, if you could call it. Like, yeah. we hope for the best, but extremely cautiously. A couple of things I hang my hat on. I do like that both Daniel and Agent Young are in Australia and filming. Yep, so is Tom. Tom too? Mm-hmm. Tom what about too. Odds? I haven't seen anything about Audrey, but I would assume she's around. Okay, I can't find her on Instagram. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I've looked. and so that part's good and they're featuring prominently to some extent like they've been filming for a while and so maybe it means that they're talking to the boys but i think more likely they're involved in and some future bunker stuff so like i hang my hat a little bit on that and then ali i wasn't sure if you just wanted to recap a couple of the other key leaks or things that we've seen from season two Mm -hmm. yeah so i think Speaking of Daniel, I think Daniel is is one leak. He, um, the actor who plays him, had a bit of a conversation. I don't know if it was a conversation or if he like he posted saying um, that he was going to be done soon. And the implication behind what he was saying was that there was only going to be eight episodes based on what he was filming. I don't think that's legit. Maybe he's just in eight episodes. I think it would be a dumb move on Amazon's part to pay all this money to get everyone to Australia and go through all of this and then cut two episodes from the show. So I do think we're getting 10 episodes. Other things that have leaked. 
this isn't really a leak because like i mean amazon prime posted it <laughs> but there's that that picture of them in the woods right and so there's there's been a lot of like woods based stuff right so like there's like the bed that's built out in the woods we've seen sort of pictures of like tony and dot and leah and like we've seen tony sitting by the fire and so it's sort of these pictures of the girls in like a different location than the beach yeah and honestly what i have to say about that is thank fucking god we have talked all fucking series about how get out of the beach like i know we want the beach because like that's the closest thing to like make signals or if there's a boat or if there's a new bag that comes in yada 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 but like very clearly being a bit closer to water and a bit closer to like shelter that's not going to be subject to tide is a better move. So really glad about that. Yeah, I think too, it's probably a bit of a strategic move. Um, obviously, we're going to be getting some scenes of the boys on the beach, right? And so I think it's also like a bit strategic to completely change sort of where the girls are. So it really creates that line or that division when they're in the woods. So we're not just spending all day on the beach with all groups and it might feel confusing. I think it also helps to draw a line because obviously they're going to have to be moving the girls. And so the beach that they're on in New Zealand is like, it's like pretty distinctive, right? Like it has a, a, a specific look. And a lot of people were wondering about like what that move was going to look like coming to Australia where the geography is entirely different, right? But I think like shifting them into the woods helps solve that problem a little bit too. Yeah, and I'll also say, too, we do know that they did do some filming in New Zealand, and the photos that were shared with that makes it seem like we're going to pick off to some extent where the episode 10 left off. Whether or not that's in episode 1, or whether or not that's a bit later in this series, we don't really know, but we see Dot in her purple sweater and her green shorts. We see Martha covered in blood in her cute outfit, like post goat killing. And so it does seem to indicate that there will be something about where they left off. I think so too. And I think it'll probably, like they weren't there for long when they went. So it's probably a little bit more about like filling a gap in between, right? So like whether that's a quick scene saying like, we need to go to the woods. It's probably a little bit longer Who says than that? that? Dot. Um, it's probably a little bit longer than that. But like, I think it'll be a little bit more like transition movement piece to kind of get us to, to shift. Which I guess is like the biggest sort of like prediction question, which I think everyone wants to answer. And I mean, we can take a stab at it, but I don't think anyone knows the fucking answer to this question, which is, is Helena Howard coming back. Yeah, and I think that's important. And there's so many loose ends just in general to the series. They really did, even though it's a relatively well thought out show, they gave them opportunities for space. And so whether that's Dot potentially being set up to be a confederate, even the boys footage being kind of grainy, that gives them the ability to play with the timelines of it as an example. And so I think both Allie and I are still in the camp that it's not necessarily simultaneous. Mm -hmm. And so that's another one. We never see Nora or Martha in the bunker. I don't know if that had to do with story or like maybe, I don't know if the two of them signed different contracts or something as an example, but that is another loose end that we see. 
And even some of the time gaps we've talked about in the girls' stories, you know, where we leave Shelby is six months before she ends up on the island. And so they gave themselves a lot of latitude, even though it was a relatively tight storyline. And more than that, there's even some days that were missing. And so I think it would be really cool in hindsight to even do like one of the missing days as part of an episode or as part of a season two. So they gave themselves a lot of opportunity for loose ends. I really hope Helena comes back. I don't know how they're going to do that whole storyline justice without her. Yeah, I think it's pretty telling that they've been doing quite a bit of filming without her there. We also know that they filmed past the end of season two with her in the water. So the last piece we see is her running towards the water when Rachel's in there, but we know that they filmed some of her in the water. I think like the prominent theory going around um, other than she died is that she gets pulled and so we're not going to see her most of the season but she will have a return at the end of the season. I'm okay with that. Like I think they're trying to pull a gotcha moment but they're not thinking about how visible it is when people are traveling right now but I'm like yeah you go try the wild. But I think I like that better as an alternative than to her dying because I just think you know, I'll be pretty frustrated if we don't see sort of the aftermath of that beach scene that we built to, right? Like, I fucking want Leah to confront Nora. Like, I want all of those pieces to happen. I want all of those things that we built through season one to sort of, like, culminate, right? Like, I like I want that moment. I want the moment when everything sort of crashes together. And so I'll be pretty disappointed if, like, we actually don't get that or if we kind of jump or skip over it. I think some of the other pieces to talk about are some of the things that we're... Uh, we're not sure if they were supposed to get out. And so I think a key example is a photo of Tony wearing Martha's watch that got out and revealed in some way. And then I can't remember who posted it, but I think someone That's posted... That's the one that Amazon Prime posted. The yeah, but I think they removed watch. it. Yeah, they did they? remove yeah. it like three days later. And I think somebody later on posted a photo of Fatten wearing... Fatten slash Martha's watch. I think that's just a tease. I think they're trying to like mitigate... Uh, but I think that's something that is, is interesting as well. Do you have thoughts on the Martha watch? I think there's definitely like the possibility that people are always like, something's wrong with Martha. And I'm like, yeah, maybe. But like, I think also like, this is something that they share for like timing purposes and things like that. And so like, I think like there's some pieces in there. I don't know if it necessarily, I mean, I have with someone have like a real dark Martha theory, but like, I think, and I, I don't want to talk about it by myself, but like, I think that like, there's the potential, sure, that something's going on with Martha, but they also, like, share resources. And so I think it could also be around that. Yeah, it could just be that Tony is on water duty that day and tr- counting to 60 is pretty tough. So you get the watch as a prize. Mm-hmm. And then I think the last piece is Mia Healy posted a piece of the boys' script. I took a look at it earlier today. All I could really gather is that it's like a scene from a backstory about Bo and Scotty, who are friends. The only piece I want to pull out is that there's a reference made to one of them touching the other one's cheek, like the mobster from The Godfather, and then something about shipping goods and then a flood. I don't know. Like... Part of me is like, if they're referencing the Godfather and their teenagers, it has to be earlier. Hmm. So I do think that piece is interesting. And then I also wonder, 
And if I want to go really deep theory, my thinking is that the scene is indicative of like perhaps like drug dealing or like selling something. It actually makes me wonder. We know that the mechanism for getting the girls to the island was through the guidance counselors. But I'm wondering if getting the boys to the island was something more to do with like restorative justice as an example. So if all of them have like potentially a move. Also, Gretchen, your experiment is just fucked to that point then. Yeah, but I think that might tie in with like some of the other theories that I don't know if we're 100% on about like maybe Devin's going to be on the island as an example. We've talked a lot in episode 11 about like what we hope and like some of those those pieces that we're really hoping for the things that we really want to see what I really think we are going to see is especially if Nora is still around I do think there's going to be a bit of a divide I think Leah is going to accuse Nora of being the confederate Um, but I think the very important thing to remember is Leah has absolutely no proof right she can't even find the camera on the tree anymore She has a pit that she says that Nora let her down. So I think there'll be like a bit of a standoff, even if Nora's gone, like between Rachel as an example and Leah or whatever that looks like. I think like there's going to be this ongoing struggle throughout the season of Leah trying to get them to see the truth and possibly of like isolating herself more in the process. I think there'll probably be a bit of a slow group divide or a slow group coming over to Leah's side and I think we see already the ramifications or the implications of that in the current bunker state we see the girls that are a bit skeptical of the detectives that are questioning them as much as they're being questioned and I do think like that demonstrates sort of an understanding that there's something bigger going on Um, if Nora is around I think Nora will be a big part of that. I think she'll initially be resistant to it, but I do think she'll help Leah in the end. But once again, it's that this whole Nora thing is so up in the air. And so I'm always a little bit confused as to like what overall that's going to look like. Yeah. And I think for me, I really like that, Allie. And I think there's a piece that I think about a lot of the time when I think about Leah trying to win others over. And that's Marcus reappearing after Martha saw Alex. Mm-hmm. And I think and hope that Martha's not through with that. And I hope in Martha's quest for like starting to see things all too clearly, mm-hmm. if you will, which is like a phrase that was used over a Nora narrative when she described both Martha and then subsequently Leah. I think that Martha will really hopefully find her voice and her truth and say, I know what I saw. I believe you. And that can, that might be where some of it falls and some of the the group divides with like Leah and Martha on one side and others on the other side. And then I guess like one of the last pieces is what do we think about Leotin? I mean, we did a whole episode on them. We did a whole episode on Leah and Fat, and we didn't do a whole episode on Leotin. What is the difference? Well, Leotin is like they're in a relationship. Ah. <laughs> I don't know. See, I this is where I get skeptical because I I don't want people to come at us, but I'm like a little, I'm like a Leah. Who's, who's coming at us? No one's coming at us. People are going to come at us. No one's coming at us. I am not not into Leotin, I would say. I'm more of like a Leah Dodden person or I'm like a Leah Chul person. We've talked the whole series about 
the Leah and Rachel friend meter. And we will at some point over the off season release it. it. We have been creating it just in the background. So I'm a little bit more aligned with them. I like obviously really love their friendship. If it turns romantic, I would be supportive. I just want them both to be happy. But I'm not a huge like shipper, I would say. I'm not a huge Leotin shipper either, but I think I'm I'm into it though, I would say. Because I think mostly what I really want for the wild is I don't want them to do what every other fucking TV show does, which is have like one queer couple and say, check, we're done. Totally. And I, I would love that for the show. Yeah. So I'm like, I'm like, yeah, like, let's like do this. And I do think like there's something about Leah and Fatten and the way that they interact. I think they have chemistry and I think like they have like a pull towards each other, which is really important. I get you on like the dot and stuff, but I think like it's a little bit more for me, like bromancy than, but I do think like there are these like moments between Leah and Fatten where I'm like, hmm, yeah, I see this. Yeah. I think, like, to use your scale, if it happened. (laughs) I mean, there's good period, great all caps, exclamation mark, and great period with a capital G. I think I'm, like, a great period with a capital G. Like, I'm not a great exclamation mark all caps, but I'm, I'm higher than a good on it. Allie looks, like, so pleased. She's, like, looking at her little scale with, like, the smuggest expression on her face. Like, you know what? I found something that works. I'm going to copyright this. It is going to be the validated scale for all future survey I mean, research. I wish you could all see what it looks like because it looks so sketchy. because it's, it's not a scale. I'm, in, I'm envisioning what it'll look like with a little bit of graphic design. A little pizzazz. A little pizzazz. And then last but not least, we got a, a fun question, which was if the girls were actually on a game of Survivor, who would win? Who would be eliminated first and who would discover the hidden immunity idol? It's been a long time since I watched Survivor. I certainly was like a fan for the first 12 or 14 seasons, but I think there's been 40 seasons in total. Holy. So I'm certainly not I mean, your up mom to speed. Still watches it. Yeah, I, yeah. My mom, I really should, I should phone in my mom. <laughs> mom! I remember when she said that one, she's like, oh, like I watched Survivor. I was like, Survivor is still on? Horrified. You're going to isolate our Survivor fans. Oh, I'm sorry, Survivor fans. They're a big group. I love you. Big cohort. You're the best. So, Allie, mm. based on your limited knowledge of Survivor, <laughs> who do you think would win? Can you, like, remind me of how Survivor works really quick? Like, like a, like a one-minute recap. So you put, like, 20 of them on an island. Correct. They do some sort of challenges. Yeah, so they usually start in two teams, and two teams are competing against each other, mm-hmm. and you form alliances. The teams, uh, they compete in challenges each week, and whoever team wins the challenge doesn't face elimination, but if you lose the challenge, you have to eliminate. And you get kicked off because people vote you off. Correct. And they, you can be voted off for like a lot of different reasons, like whether you're two-faced or whether you're too strong or whether you're not strong enough or whether okay. you're too tough or too funny or not serious or too well-liked. So I know who would win. Okay. Martha. Martha would win. I think Martha would fly under the radar enough at the beginning. I think Dot would get kicked out. First, yeah. I think, like, she has a lot of skill, but I think, like, if we're thinking about some of her skills, other people have some knowledge uh, in those places. So she might make a couple of rounds, but then I think, like, she's too big of a threat. She would get kicked out. 
I think Martha has secret under the radar survival skills that we see come out in these like random moments, but wouldn't make her a threat to people. And she's kind of like soft and sweet and non-threatening. So I feel like people would like push her through, which would give her time to build relationships. People kind of feel protective of her too. So they carry her along. And then I think she'd knock them fucking out. So you're saying Martha would win. Are you saying that Dot would get kicked off first? Too strong, too survivalist? No, I think Fatten would get kicked off first. I think Fatten would get kicked off first too. I think like Fatten would get kicked off first because while she like has a good sense of humor, it might, she might not quite warm up quickly enough because it's kind of a unique sense of humor. And so I think the first like elimination is within the first couple of days. And so I just worry about her social game not progressing quickly enough. And she's a bit lazy. So like, especially in the beginning, they want to win all the challenges that they can. And so I think Fatten would be seen as like someone who's like, quote, weak, even though we know she's really strong, of course, but I feel like she would get kicked off early. Who do you think would win? Uh, I think that Shelby might win. Hmm. I think like Shelby, we know that she's like physically fit and strong. Like she goes to God cycle or whatever it's called. Soul, soul cycle. Soul cycle. God cycle. I think, I think soul cycle is something different though, isn't it? No. Oh, okay. Anyways, <laughs> God cycle. And so like we know she has some stamina. She's also like world's greatest masker. Like I think she would like could be pretty sneaky. She'd have a really good social game in terms of like forming alliances, supporting people, being empathetic, all those sorts of pieces. And I think that she would be strong enough that they would keep her around for challenges, but not too strong that they'd like see her as a huge threat until the end. I like that. Explain this idol thing to me. So I think the idol is like, it's been a long time since I watched it, as I mentioned, but like sometimes they put like hidden little like artifacts around and they get a little bit of incentives you know kind of like the punishment pass in hell's kitchen Mm. but you find it you stumble upon it so it's just like randomly hidden there's no like correct you just have to be observant yeah can we do a three two one on this (laughs) who would find the immunity idol three Three, two two, one leah Leah. yeah it's leah that's it i think i think a good case could be made for nora too yeah she's pretty observant and like she's watching things but i think like leah would be like looking in the trees and like i don't know she's just always looking at everything so i also dark horse candidate sorry this is who i actually thought was going to win when i thought about this question earlier and then i for some reason i was only thinking about shelby but i actually think tony would be a dark horse candidate again like strong mm-hmm. mighty and small and sometimes being small has advantages in the team challenges because you need to go in like tiny crevasses sometimes what or like but sometimes what, they're what like did you say it like that? crevasses what you so sometimes being small has its advantage but she's also like strong she's like a basketball player that sort of thing mm. tony even though we haven't seen a lot of it when you actually look back at her throughout the series she makes a lot of jokes she's like quick to make other people smile and like play along she's fiercely loyal and so the game of strategy and alliances i think would serve her really well and so i actually think tony might be a dark horse candidate for winner too so another piece that we wanted to talk about that hasn't quite fit in any other episodes we tried to put it into our last episode on dot and shelby but as it was already over two hours long we decided to put it here instead. And that is the ways in which Shelby uses language, both 
explicit language, as well as language that refers to religion. And so, as I think folks probably know, I tend to like to track things. And so in the last episode, I talked about how Shelby swears in episode one, she says motherfucker, and then she doesn't swear again until episode six. And the next time she swears is, so what, I can't fucking accept everyone when she's talking about her sexuality. From episode six on, she swears 14 times. You go good, kid. In five episodes. <laughs> Which is pretty stark in contrast to the rest of the show. And the other piece I wanted to mention is her references to God or religion in some way. And so I think we think about some of Shelby's bigger religious lines as God built us to contain multitudes. That's one that we refer to a lot of the time. There's a couple of times when language goes with talking about God. So she says Jesus fucking Christ once. She refers to the island as a God-forsaken island and a God-forsaken place twice in episode eight. And in total, I think she makes at least 21 explicit references to God or Jesus or the Bible or, or something like that. What's interesting about this to some extent is that it's pretty well distributed in all of the episodes, but there's no references in Dot's episode, at least that I could track, which is interesting because they spend so much of the episode together on Hell Beach, as well as with the snake, as well as with the green flash at sunset. So I just wanted to point that out as well. Yeah, I think the way that Shelby talks, and the language that she uses is so interesting too, because there's such a prevalence of these moments where she echoes back her dad's lines to us, even before we've met him. So I know like the, the most classic, easy example that we always think about is God in your wisdom, give us the faith to be what you intended. And that's the one that we see Shelby saying on the beach when she's kind of like holding her cross after Doc gives her the vodka. And then we kind of transition over to hearing her dad say it when he's in that sort of like front room. And so we always think about that, but that's not the only instance that it happens. We have, you know, her dad saying God made you this way and God only does beautiful her echoing that back as a part of Lynn's funeral when she says, because she was made in your image, we can be sure that she's beautiful. There's this moment in episode one where she says, you know, if God leads us to it, God will lead us through it. This is a direct echo back of something that Dave says. We know already that even like some of the argument pieces that they're having as a part of Shelby's episode where, you know, he's saying, I do try to love them. And when then she's saying, I don't hate you, that tension that exists as she's trying to take these things that she's been taught, take these terms and these phrases that she's been taught and sort of like adapt them to this new existence that she has on the island. And then another... Sorry, if you're hearing a lot of rumbling, it's because there's a thunderstorm going on right now. And then sort of another um, really strong example is in episode two, when they're on that sort of like hike up the mountain, Shelby echoes back a line from Dave, which is, I'm telling you, God does not do ugly. So what these really show is, especially at the beginning of the island, is the prominence of Dave's voice in Shelby's head and the way that she uses these phrases and these things that have clearly had a big impact on her as sort of a shield around her. 
A lot of these instances happen up until kind of episode six. And then other than sort of like her spiral in episode eight, we don't see them as much anymore. Um, but we really see them in these moments of crisis. So this moment at the beginning when they don't know what's happening, when all of this stuff is going on with Tony and them saying that Shelby's being homophobic. And then when she thinks the plane is coming and she has to go back. In these moments of crisis, she relies back on her faith, but not actually her faith, on the faith that's been perpetuated to her, on the faith that her father gave her. And she kind of like parrots back phrases that were said to her to kind of give meaning to the world around her. Yeah, and I also want to say we've really pulled out a lot of the quotes that have religious undertones to them, but another good example happens in later in her episode, actually. We hear Dave tell her, I don't want you to be alone. And then we see later in that episode, Trainwrecks Unites, Shelby says to Leah, isn't that what we're all afraid of? that we won't be loved, and that we'll be all alone. Which I really like because it shows some growth that she's able to like take what her dad said to her in a moment of like deep hurt and pain and say, that is what I'm afraid of. And that's what I'm really struggling with. I want to take it on, not just as like a thing that's being thrown over her as a blanket that's being thrown over her, but understanding how that resonates with her deeply. And how it's bigger than just words that her dad said that she's now saying back. How it really is everything that was done to her has created a Shelby that is terrified of not being loved. That is terrified of being alone. And that doesn't know how to operate in a space where she doesn't have a network, a community, a family, friends to rely back on. Another piece that we just wanted to touch on as we've gone through the show... I've really paid attention to every time the characters say the word wild or wilds. It actually comes up 10 times, not necessarily in every episode, but three of them are, hey baby, take a walk on the wild side. (laughs) So if we can really count it as 10, I'm not sure. And even the one before uh, is also a reference to that song. So I'm going to go through and read them here. So in episode one... Leah's mom in the car says, I know you're not wild about this trip. In episode two, Fatten, after almost being hit by Dot's terrible softball throw, says, I will not be doing that in the wilds. Episode four, Tony talking to Regan, says, my foster parents just let their kids like wild out. Episode four as well, Gretchen says to Leah's parents, it's not just therapy in the wilds. Episode six, also our episode title, Daniel, Not All Wild Notions Are Without Merit. Episode six, Gretchen describing her children, or the girls, or both. It's a wild ride with them. Episode seven, Lynn talking to Gretchen before they leave. This is the last chance to take a walk on the wild side. And then both Gretchen and Lynn singing the song, Hey Baby, Take a Walk on the Wild Side cool eh (laughs) ever cool i have tracked this a few times i think i've captured all of them i think what's interesting is again it's kind of like the camo it's like there's more than you'd think and so i know like title spoken by main character is like a trope if you will in a lot of different tv shows but it is really interesting to see it so prevalent in a lot of different episodes and shared by a lot of different voices too And so with that, 
I think this is the end of this last episode of season one. Certainly, if there is a trailer or something released, we will pop in and record another episode. And of course, we'll still be reachable on social media. But there will not be a new episode in the next two weeks, or the two weeks after, or the two weeks after. And I can't make really any promises from there after, because I don't really trust us. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, we keep talking about our crazy theory episode we might drop. So like, I mean, no timelines on it, but maybe. We'll see. Yeah, and I just want to say I felt incredibly privileged to be able to do this, not only with you, Rachel, like to be able to kind of like build this thing together and watch the show 13 times, but also to sort of theorize, to create outlines, to sort of map out something and to, yeah, just to like build something that I think is really powerful to both of us and really important to both of us has been so so wonderful. But I think also it's been really powerful to me to also get to engage with all like of our listeners right and so like that's been super cool i think thank you to everyone who's like sent us a message or um argued with me about a theory or have just sent kind words as well thank you to everyone who hasn't done any of those things and who has just kind of quietly listened we appreciate you regardless of like which route you took and sort of knowing that people wanted this and that people listened to it was like really important to us and really powerful to us and so it was I don't know, something like that kept us going, right? And that kept us engaged in this. But I just feel so lucky to have gotten to be, I sound like we're not coming back, but I feel so lucky to have gotten to be like a part of this community, to be able to have like engaged in the content this way and to be able to have like built a space that hopefully you all enjoyed and like found special. And I'm really excited to be able to do it again for for season two. Yeah, and I agree with you hun this is a really it's a really special space for us as married folks to be able to exactly as Ali said you know create something especially in covid times when yeah we were like kind of stuck at home and both working really stressful jobs that are wonderful and enriching but often especially for us as like a couple just leave us really zonked it gave us such like a lovely focus in the winter and a space to be creative too which exactly has been it's been so great to yeah to build something with you i hope it's felt like a really special and safe place for all of the listeners too um, i know we've received a few comments especially from young folks that are queer who have said it's just really cool to hear some like married to each other ladies who like seem like they're doing okay and um, certainly that's something we've tried to touch on throughout the show as well and that's something we really want to reiterate to everyone here now while we have a few moments is like yeah it's this is a a lifelong journey and and it's okay and you're going to find your community and you're going to find your people if you haven't already and so um, we support you and we we stand in solidarity with you too Mm -hmm. something that really struck me a comment we got from someone a couple of days ago is 30 hours later and and I was like oh my goodness we're basically I think at about 30 hours we've had hour and a half hour and 45 long episodes this is episode 17 like we're at least there by now and uh, it really strikes us that some people have spent 30 hours listening to this and engaging with this mad respect honestly totally mad respects and yeah, it's uh, wild. Honestly, it's all the words I have for it is that folks have engaged with us. And just as Ali said, you know, we appreciate all levels of engagement, whether that is the folks that reach out to us weekly with new thoughts, new theories, 
uh, the folks that have never messaged us at all. You know, there's a couple of folks that I know have rated, a couple of folks that have reviewed that I don't actually even think have ever sent us a message. And so whatever way you engage in, we really appreciate you and we do see you. And so thank you so much for listening, for sharing it with your friends, or even just for listening quietly and not telling a soul. We hope it's been fun for you. It's been so fun for us. And we can't wait to come back for season two. We're around. Don't be afraid to reach out. But we love you all. And we will see you soon. Bye, everyone. Bye, everyone.